Good morning, everybody. Lovely to see you and to welcome you on this um, Jubilee weekend. And I think that probably there are quite a few people at various parties and, uh, and events today. Was your road closed for a party? Some of your roads are closed, I expect. I hope everyone has a lovely time and that we dodge the showers. Have a great day. It's very strange how things work out, you know, because, of course, this weekend we're celebrating the reign of a really wonderful um, queen. But as it happens in our readings this morning, we've ended up having to talk about a failed king. Um, the first king of Israel by the name of Saul. Now the contrast between King Saul of Israel back in those days and Elizabeth, our queen, is stark. But when it's nothing though compared to the contrast between Saul, and who was Israel's first king, and Jesus Christ, who is Israel's final and ultimate king, in the end of the line that Saul um, somehow begins. Now, I've got basically three aims in this um, sermon this morning. I want to tell you Saul's story because I know some of you won't know it. That's fine. That's partly why we, we gather to, to look at the scriptures. Some of you won't know the story of Saul. So I'm going to just outline the story. Some of you will know it, of course. But I want to just make sure we all know that story. And then I want us to think why it was that, um, that it, basically he failed and the Lord ended up rejecting him. How did that end up happening? But I also want us to see where the story, this story of a failed king fits into God's big scheme and plan to ultimately raise Jesus as the everlasting king. So three aims I've got, outline Saul's story, highlight the reasons he failed, and learn more about Jesus' eternal kingdom. So I hope we can basically hit those three nails as we, I'm going to go take us on a pretty brisk walk through about six chapters of Old Testament history, um, really from... So, Bible's open. If you've got them there, we're going to start at 1 Samuel um, chapter 9, and we're going to be moving through to about chapter 15. I reckon that's probably on about page 300 of the church Bibles. So, starting from about page 300 and uh, 1 Samuel 9 through to Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, I'm going to basically overview those whole chapters. So, let's go. Now, last Sunday, Adam um, set us up in um, chapter 8. Chapter 8 is one of those momentous times in the Bible, um, one of those key structural chapters where the people request a king. They come to the elderly prophet Samuel and they say, give us a king just like all the other nations have. It's chapter 8 verse 4. Now that question was treason because Israel already had a king. The Lord God reigned over them. The living God who rescued them from slavery in Egypt hundreds of years before, who had given them the very land they had lived in. Um, he had given them the prophet Samuel to speak so they could hear clearly from him. But they're like, we don't want that. We want a human king. The Lord, the invisible Lord and his doddery elderly prophet, you know, they thought that doesn't cut it. That doesn't look very good at international conferences. We want, you know, the times are sophisticated. This era of international threat. We need something a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit more up to date. How about a king? Give us a king just like all the other nations have. It's, it's treason against the true king who is the Lord. But, terrifyingly, the Lord says to Samuel, okay, if they want a king just like the other nations have, you shall have one. 
So in other words, they abandon the king that they desperately need, the one they just don't deserve, that is the Lord, and instead they get a king they really don't need, but they do thoroughly deserve, and his name is Saul. Right, Saul is introduced at the start of chapter 9. Now, judge by outward appearance, he is good king material. He's just like Adam. Because, chapter 9, verse 2, he was the most handsome young man in Israel and a head taller than everybody else. That's the bit I had in mind particularly. (laughs) Another handsome bit applied as well. So he looks the part, but his personality actually is not well fitted for leadership. You can tell that really straight away. It comes through in chapter 9. So he, the first time we meet him, his dad's lost, his fa- lost the family donkeys. And so Saul's been sent to find these donkeys. The problem is he can't find them, and eventually they make their own way back without his help, which actually becomes a bit of a metaphor for the, his reign. But anyway, he, uh, the donkeys find their way home. And then when they've lost the donkeys, it's his servant who takes the initiative to suggest dropping in on the prophet Samuel. Samuel might be able to tell them where the donkeys are. And, um, and then it's the servant who not only suggests it, but also has the, the resources on him to, to pay the money to, to the prophet. And Saul doesn't seem to have a lot of initiative. It's interesting. Anyway, meanwhile, um, in another scene... This Saul looking for his donkeys. Meanwhile, Samuel the prophet, and the Lord comes to Samuel the prophet and says to him, tomorrow you're going to receive a visit from a man from the tribe of Benjamin. This is the man who is to become king. And so then when Saul arrives to ask about these donkeys, the Lord underlines the message to Samuel and says, that's the one. And so first thing the next morning, look at chapter 10 verse 1, Samuel secretly anoints Saul as king. He anoints him. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and put olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you as ruler over his inheritance, over his people? Now, you know, that is so significant, that moment in biblical history. It is so significant in God's plans towards the world. Because, yes, it's true that the Lord will soon reject Saul himself for reasons we'll discover. But that anointing is the turning point in God's plans, in a way, because from that moment, God is committing to anointing a king to rule his people. By the way, do you know what the Hebrew word for an anointed one is? It's Messiah. Messiah. That's the the Hebrew word. The Greek word is one you might recognize as well. It's Christos, from where we get the word Christ. Christ. Interesting, isn't it? This is the moment there is a Christ in Israel, an anointed one. Significant moment as the Lord anoints Saul as king. He's committing himself. There will be a human Messiah over Israel. Well, Saul might have been anointed. You know, sometimes you sort of think to yourself, did I dream that? Did that really happen? Because it's out of the blue for him. And anyway, to make sure that that didn't happen, Samuel gave him three signs, three things that are going to happen that day that would confirm that the anointing really was real and was of God. Now, the signs are slightly strange on the face of it, although they do have significance. Basically, the signs are, going to, are confirming that God will provide 
for Saul's reign. So first of all, he goes along and he meets, um, he, he meets two men that tell him that the donkeys, those donkeys, those pesky donkeys, have been found. And it's all fine with the donkeys. And then he's going to meet two men who are going to give him some bread. They're on, going to be on their way to sacrifice. They're going to give him some bread. And then he is going to have a powerful experience of the Holy Spirit. And when he bumps into a group of prophets who are going to be coming down prophesying in the Spirit, and he's going to join them. And all of it happens that day. So after that day, there should have been no doubt whatsoever in Saul's mind. That anointing this morning that I had from Samuel, that is real. And think of those signs. They're telling him, they're saying, Saul, the Lord is going to provide for you. He's going to provide um, knowledge. He's going to provide you with material things. And he's going to provide you with the gift of the Holy Spirit to aid you in what you do. But then something that I think is quite weird happens. And I don't know what you're going to make of it. Let's see. Because Samuel then gathers the people together to make this thing public. But he doesn't just pick Saul out and go, this is the guy that the Lord has pointed out to me. They actually conduct a public um, uh, lot taking. It's like a lottery. Literally, they're pulling names out of the, the, the hat. Say, so who's going to be king? Of course, under God's sovereign hand. And so the tribe of Benjamin is taken and then the family of Kish is taken and then out of the family of Kish, Saul is taken as king. In other words, confirming publicly this really is God's will. But then they look for him. They're like, well, where is this man Saul whose name we've just pulled out of the hat to be king? But he's nowhere to be found. And eventually they search him out. And do you know where he is? Look at chapter 10, verse 22. Saul had hidden himself among the bags. He was hiding among all the suitcases. You're like, why? I, well, I don't know what you make about that. Maybe, and as many people have done in the past, read it as a sign of um, modesty, a kind of unassuming shyness. And I suppose it could be that. I don't know what you think of it. Puzzle on it later. It's a bit of a riddle. I think, let me throw out what I think. I think this is a sign of the disobedience that Saul is actually going to display later on. It's a sign. Because the thing is, the Lord had given him plenty of confirmation already that he was going to be king. Was hiding a way of testing if God really meant what he said? I wonder whether it was. Uh, at this point, actually, we're not sure. We don't know how to read it. As we read it, we, we get there, we're not sure. But I think we do get a strong hint later on, I'm going to show this, um, that that is not the way he should have reacted. And we're going to follow this downward spiral of Saul in just a moment. But here's the real tragedy of Saul's life. The real tragedy is that it started so well. Because, um, so, the, so chapter 10, they formalize the kingship, they formalize it publicly. Um, the people wanted a king like the other nations had. But actually, Samuel says to them, look, really, you can't have a king just like all the other nations have because the Lord is your king, and nothing is actually going to change that. Um, so, Saul, you're going to have to reign under the authority of the Lord. That actually is going to make things a little bit different. On Friday morning, the Archbishop of York was interviewed on the radio. Remember, he had to preach because um, the Archbishop of Canterbury had got coronavirus. And so the Archbishop of York was wheeled out to give the Jubilee sermon, which is a fairly big gig to do at short um, short notice. Anyway, he just pointed out in his radio interview that whilst all of us bow our knee to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, 
that she very explicitly and clearly bends the knee to another king, to Jesus, the eternal king, the king of kings and the lord of lords. Now Saul had to do the same. He had to bow to the other kings. So the kings of the other nations might have acted in whatever way they wanted. But Samuel reminds Saul and the people that they are accountable to God and his word. There has to be a harmony between the divine king who really reigns and the human king of Israel, Saul. And there does seem to be a perfect harmony in chapter 11 between the Lord and King Saul. So that's the story that Viv read to us a moment ago. And there is this basically this sort of psychopathic um, Nahash the Ammonite. And um, he was, a, he was a, a bully, local political bully, and he threatens the town of Jabesh-Gilead, which is an outlying town just on the edge of, um, of, of the, the kingdom of Israel, beyond the river Jordan. Um, and um, basically he says to them, he says, right, come out and I'm, I'm going I'm to come in, here's my agreement with you, I'm going to poke out the right eye of every single one of you. Like, nice guy. Anyway, um, when, chapter 11, verse 6, this is the high point of Saul's reign. Um, when Saul heard the plight of the people of Jabesh-Gilead, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. And then he mobilizes about a quarter of a million troops in less than a week. I mean, it's extraordinary. The Lord is with him and he goes off and he delivers the, people of, the helpless people of Jabesh-Gilead and gives um, Nahash the Ammonite um, a bit of a, a, a something to think about. So, he's secu- basically, he's secure on the throne. Um, and, he ha- and, and what's lovely is then he has, because there have been some people who were opposed to his reign, he has mercy on them. And we think, oh, this looks really promising. The Lord is ultimately the king. Saul is the king under him. And the people are saved. This is great. Thing is, though, you can't judge a race until you reach the finishing line. And Saul makes a great start. He reminds me of, the, of children at the park run. I do the park run on Saturday mornings in Danson Park. And um, you see the, the children, usually the sort of the under 10-year-old children, and they absolutely pelt at the beginning, sprinting. And you're thinking, I'm going to give you to the first bend. And sure enough, almost always, they conk out and they don't actually get very far. And... Um, Soon they they learn that you just can't do that on a long race. Anyway, Saul, he starts brilliantly. But the harmony with the Lord turns out to be very short-lived. When I was Saul, I think about, um, about, about snow. You know, white snow can temporarily make the most muddy ground look pristine. But it doesn't last very long. Particularly when the heat of pressure and uh, of, of leadership inevitably brings um, melted away and soon the mud in Saul's leadership is very much um, uh, a scene because leadership does accentuate and highlight underlying character flaws and hidden sins by the way I found studying Saul um, has held a mirror up to my own leadership it's most uncomfortable if you're a leader in some context study Saul and quake because actually there's a lot of him in a lot of us it's sobering and the most striking thing about Saul I think and his dysfunctions is there is a crippling insecurity at the root of his character 
which actually, uh, you know, actually really stems from a refusal ultimately to believe that God really has anointed him and has promised to provide for him. And that insecurity, it leads him to crave the approval of other people. And also, he's constantly left unsure that God is really committed to him. So he keeps asking for what turn out to be quite superstitious signs of God's favor that God has actually already promised him. And as a result, he never ends up taking the initiative, but he always ends up dithering um, at critical moments. It's tragic. And the critical moment seems to come in chapters 13 and 14 at the Battle of Michmash, which is in, um, around the land of Benjamin, near Saul's home territory. Now, as the battle is happening, the Philistines are gathering their troops, and Saul has a decent army to start with, but he's supposed to wait seven days for the prophet Samuel to come and offer various sacrifices before the battle. But Saul looks at the Philistine army growing, and his own army starts to um, desert. And uh, so he thinks, well, I'd better do something quickly. I better do something quickly. So he doesn't wait for Samuel to come, and he actually starts offering these sacrifices himself, which is something the king should not have done. And really, he should have known that, but he does it anyway out of fear and impatience. And so as a result, when Samuel arrives, the prophet, Samuel the prophet, he announces the Lord's verdict, or at least the preliminary verdict on Saul. Do you think this is harsh? I don't know. Listen to the verdict. Chapter 13, verse 13. Samuel says to Saul, you've done a foolish thing. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom of Israel over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now we might think, oh Lord, that's a bit harsh. You know, it's just he didn't, he didn't wait. I mean, Samuel could have arrived a bit earlier, couldn't he? And I mean, you know, Lord, it's only one mistake, one strike, and you seem to have, you know, he seems to be out forever. Well, I suppose you could see it like that. On the other hand, just think about it. The most important thing for a king under God's authority is to obey. That is the single most important thing. And if you don't do that, Saul, you cannot be king. And so that's what happens. And the Lord says, I will find somebody who will accept my authority, whose own heart is over me. So the battle of Michmash, actually, interestingly, chapter 14 relates the battle itself. And the battle ends in victory for Israel. But fascinatingly, the victory doesn't come through Saul. It actually really comes that Saul demonstrates zilch initiative, zero. He divers as the army, actually his own army ends up hiding in caves and in wells. Basically, I'm cowering, hiding. Ah, that word, that word hiding. Where have we encountered that before in the narrative? Remember Saul hiding among the bags? Isn't that interesting? The hiding king who shrinks from God's call and God's anointing upon him is now leading a people who themselves are shrinking, hiding away, refusing to trust and believe that the Lord will deliver them. You see, the king and the people, they mirror each other. 
Again and again this happens. This has been um, discovered um, anew in recent years with all the different allegations of abuse in various organizations, including the churches. Is that it's not only the abusive leader, but it's the culture that has enabled that abuse coming together and working with a kind of um, uh, uh, common energy to sustain one another. Sobering stuff. As Israel has chosen this dysfunctional leader who actually brings out and accentuates her own dysfunctions, which in turn sustain the dysfunction of the leader. See, all the positive action in this battle, it actually doesn't come from Saul. It comes from his son, Jonathan. Jonathan is wonderful. We're going to hear more about Jonathan. He's one of Scripture's unsung heroes. Um, But, you know, the funny thing is that Saul ends up almost killing Jonathan in the battle as a result of a superstitious oath that Saul had taken to kill anybody who ate on the day of the battle, which was a stupid and actually a superstitious thing to do, to say no one is to eat anything on the day of battle. It was a sort of way of securing God's favor. You're like, Saul, you're bringing trouble on the people. Jonathan, in the end, is only saved because Jonathan reached out his sword and picked up some honey and ate it without realizing about his dad's oath. And um, Saul was going to kill him for it. And then Saul changed his mind about killing Jonathan because the people told him he should change his mind. See, he's weak, prevaricating and causing all sorts of problems for everybody. Well, the Battle of Michmash, it reveals the chronic problems with Saul's leadership. But then the Battle of the Amalekites in chapter 15, it takes things to a new level. The situation becomes terminal. It's not chronic anymore, it's terminal. So chapter 15 repeats and strengthens the Lord's announcement that Saul is to be rejected. So this battle, chapter 15, the battle with the Amalekites, it's actually not about a human victory. This was not Saul's battle. This is explicitly the Lord's judgment, which is why at the beginning of the chapter, the Lord says to Saul, you are to destroy everything and you are to keep nothing. This place, says the Lord, I am claiming this place. You are merely the agent of my judgment. He says, you are not to keep any plunder. But disobedience rears its head. Read chapter 15 later and you'll see how it plays out. Saul and his men, they keep the plunder from the battle, the quality plunder. Anyway, they get rid of everything that's, that's, that's rubbish and weak and useless. But everything that's good, they keep. And so the Lord sends Samuel to pronounce judgment on Saul. And Saul gives us a lesson in wriggling out of things. It's a case study in how to wriggle out of it. So, Saul, so Samuel says to him, Saul, you didn't obey. And Saul's first answer is, I did basically obey. And Saul's like, no, with the Lord you entirely obey or you don't obey at all. And then Saul tries another one. He says, I did keep the good plunder, but only so I could sacrifice it to the Lord. In other words, I had good religious intentions about it. To which the Lord says, chapter 15, verse 22, very famous and important verse, to obey is better than sacrifice. And so then Saul tries another tack. He said, I would have obeyed, but I feared my men who wanted to keep the plunder. To which Samuel is basically saying, but you're the king, Saul. You shouldn't have feared them. 
Okay, says Saul in the end, I sinned. But don't let me lose any face over it. See, the tragedy is that Saul was becoming obsessed, as worldly leaders tend to be, about his image and his popularity. I mean, it actually turns out in chapter 15, it's almost a footnote in chapter 15, verse 12, that he'd actually been recently building a monument in his own honour. And soon he's going to be raging against the people's affection for his successor, David. Yes, that's right, there is a new king coming, you see, David. The Lord promises again to tear the kingdom from Saul's hand and to raise up a new king, a better one than Saul, one who is a king after God's own heart, who will obey. And as we're going to see in the next few weeks, that king was, a, was called David, and Saul did everything he could to destroy David. And we're going to see that develop. Um, now I said that I had three aims this morning. I wanted to introduce the story of Saul and I wanted to trace his failure. I think we've done a bit of that, or quite a lot of that. I, I just want to try and fulfill a bit more of that third aim as, we, as, we, as I finish, which is to show where this story of failure fits in with God's eternal kingdom of Christ. See, there's a puzzle here. Look at chapter 15, verses 28 to 29. Chapter, chapter 15, verses 28 to 29. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one better than you. He, is the, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. But wait a moment, we could protest. Lord, didn't you change your mind about Saul? Well, it appears that way to us. But in fact, it's not the Lord God who's changed his mind, it's Saul. God's purpose remains absolutely unchanged, which is that he will install a human king over his people. A king whose heart is entirely in tune with his own. A king who is perfect in obedience. A king who won't project his own dysfunction onto a dysfunctional people. But a king who will radiate his own perfection onto a people who he is perfecting and transforming. Now that king, it turns out, cannot be born into the line and dynasty of Saul. That dynasty is doomed. David's line, that proves to be a different matter. Because Jesus Christ was born into David's family tree. And even this very morning, he sits on an everlasting throne to give security and confidence to everybody who trusts in him. See, Queen Elizabeth, what she has given to our nation over these last years, a very turbulent time of change. Britain in 2022 compared to Britain in 1952. It's like two different worlds, as some of you know, because you were there. But she has, been a, has lent a degree of security and confidence through those turbulent times. Something that Saul never gave to Israel, or only momentarily did. But let's give our hearts allegiance now again to Jesus, who promises security and confidence, 
not just to some degree, but beyond measure to anybody who bows the knee to him. Let's pray. Father, the story of Saul is a tragedy, and yet, like a photographic negative, there it is in all its negative colours. In some ways, it reflects the positive, full-colour picture of Christ, perfect in obedience, the one who brings utter blessing to his people, the one who transforms them not into dysfunction, but into life. We pray Lord Jesus Christ, King of the ages, that this morning from your throne in heaven, you would give us the spirit to transform us into the image of you, our glorious King, for the glory of your Father.